Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. I'm back with another rap, but a shorter verse, non-custodial, not your keys, not your cheese. We're talking today with Bitcoin OG, Eric Voorhees. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. We have an awesome show today. We're talking with Shapeshift founder and former CEO, now DAO member of Shapeshift, Eric Voorhees. Um, he's been in Bitcoin since 2011. We're going to talk with him about Bitcoin culture, Bitcoin history, Shapeshift, DAOs, DeFi, FTX and Alameda, um, and a lot more. So you definitely want to hear that. Um, Saul Kadir from the research team and I will interview Eric momentarily. But before we get to Eric, we will check in with our good friend Bimnet of BB from Galaxy Digital Trading to talk markets. Um, the Fed today uh, raised rates by 50 bips, so we'll get into it with him. Um, and before we begin, I must remind you to please look at the disclaimer and the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes an offer, solicitation, or recommendation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Um, that's it. We're ready to go. Let's get right into it. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet, a BB from Galaxy Digital Trading. How are you doing today, Bimnet? It's like my Super Bowl. I'm Fed having day. a great day. CPI yesterday, yes. Fed Day today. Yeah, we got ECB and Bank of England also later this week. So this I is mean, like it's and there's the World Cup. And there's the World it's Cup. The, it's the Super Bowl. And there's been some good NFL games. Let's get yes. past that. Tell me um what the data said this week on CPI. This was on Tuesday. Today's Wednesday. That was yeah, yesterday. Yeah, so basically um all of the the components that that we wanted to see showing a, a deceleration in, in prices, we saw um and you know the big ones were, you know, think things like like uh, you know core, core inflation, like the the food prices. Shelter was was a little high; it was like 0.6 month on month. But used autos dropped a, a lot. Um, yeah, uh, broadly speaking, like a, a 0.1 month on month increase um, will get you there if you just keep printing 0.1. So a lot of things were, were good well, in the inflation. Well, what do you mean? It's still an increase, right? It is, but you want like the Fed is targeting two percent inflation, right? right? They want prices to only go up by two percent a year, basically, right? So it's all about so, the, wait, the, we're not the rate get, of change of prices, so not the absolute level. To be clear, level. that's interesting because you're, we're not going to get out of this process. We're not going to get back to the prices. No, never, oh. never. That's <laughs> never been. Cats out of the bag. Yeah. Well, that's the key thing about like inflation targeting. Probably yeah, not exactly. our audience and, and a lot of finance people know this, but like I think the general public thinks that like inflation going down will mean that we like come back to where we were. No, it's, it's that never we, happens. Does it? Never happens. So uh, we're gonna. So the ideal then is a big is what, what happened a big jump up, and then we hope like a flattening of inflation. Correct. Yeah. So like your apartment rent went from two thousand a month to three thousand super quickly. Right. But we want the balance of the increases to go to like 3,000 to 3,100, 3,200 slowly, right? right? right. And that's really what the Fed's trying to do. And 0.1 would get us there is what you're saying. Well, if you consistently print 0.1. Because that's that's a 1.2% annual inflation. Yes. So 0.1 is actually great. Yes. Correct. Got it. But the math is not linear like that, but yes. Right, right. It's not. Um, But exactly. Um, And so the, the, the... the the things that we know like are gonna work with a lag are things like CPI sorry things like shelter right like we know that it monetary policy works with a lag because that's on what like rents are like longer duration it, it, and it, 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 the the measure is a little bit more backward looking yeah um and so got it 
that that's why it gets tricky. So imagine like your your lease is up, like and you haven't renewed in like a year. Your rent's gonna jump. Right, by. you're not really... seeing the increase yet. Yeah, yeah. I so so then um, so how do I mean markets were up yesterday? Yeah, no, Bitcoin it was, was, a, it was a crazy crazy market reaction. Nasdaq ripped about four uh, percent. Front end rates rallied by by thirty basis points, which is huge. I was like in my wing scenario, it was like really hawkish number, really dovish. I was like anticipating 25 basis points. You may get 27, but you move 30 plus basis points. I think at some point it was like 33 basis points in, in certain contracts. So it was, a, it was a welcome surprise to the market. However, I would say that the price action you saw after um, the, the number came out tells you that there was a lot baked in. One of the... Um, sort of high frequency data points that we like to look at um, is this thing called like the, the Adobe index. Basically it measures like trillions of, 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 of data points um, across like online retail, like basically anything you can scrape data wise and yep. get yourself a, a feed of like what's going on in prices, um, it looks at. And it hit a, a, a low um, that hadn't been seen since like 2020 uh, for the month of November. And it typically leads CPI uh, pretty well. Got it. So there's a lot of chatter, you know, amongst, you know, rate watchers and Fed watchers that the CPI number would be flat because you had all these like sales during um, Cyber Monday, all of these uh, good consumer good companies had huge inventories, right? So they wanted to, to offload that in the holiday season. So you've had you had I, I generally think that the, the, the whisper or the, the actual expectation for the number was lower than like the stated like Bloomberg estimates. Right. So once you had that initial reaction, which was just buy all risk and buy bonds, you know, it kind of came down because that was already kind of baked into the number. I see. In addition, you know that um, when rates go down and stock markets rise, that is effectively a loosening of financial conditions. And the whole objective of the Fed right now is to keep financial conditions sufficiently tight for a prolonged period of time. So you know that if the Fed came out dovish today, it would have been like game over for risk assets. <laughs> right? Bonds would have gone crazy. And so they basically couldn't have followed up a soft CPI print by sounding like dovish. So they, they raised today the FOMC by 50 bips, which Correct. was a uh, decline in the raise uh, in, the, in the rise. So I, pricing had gone to like 52, 53 yeah. going into the, but the meeting. you're saying they came out hawkish in Fed. Jay Powell came out hawkish in his statements. In his statement and in the dot plot. Um, mainly it was, it was dot plot that was increased by 50 basis points in terms of where we're going to get to in terminal rates. So from 4.6% to 5.1%, right? Um, and, you know, he stressed that, you know, it's about the, how how long rates stay high, not really about how high rates mm -hmm. get, um, which is a very important nuance. It's like the difference between 475 is not that big, but 475 and or 5% for six months versus a year, that's a much more material right. sort of impact. And that's what they're signaling and saying. That's what they're signaling and saying, but the market is sniffing it out already, right? They see the price declines coming, right? Like they, you, you can... Like go out on the street and see the the, the sale signs, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I don't know if people have pumped gas recently, but gas has been coming off. I even. actually saw it come down meaningfully. I think in, um, in North Carolina, or yeah, in, where I buy gas, yeah. um, I, it was uh, really at like three forty nine ninety nine cents or point nine nine uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And now I think I saw um, 
last weekend was three dollars and ten cents. I mean, that's a material that's, decline. That's ten percent. Yeah, and so um, and and it, and it looked it felt actually felt like it was still dropping because um, it wasn't it, it like I had seen like three dollars and twenty cents and yep. it was like three fifteen and and couple that with the idea that prices are are quick to adjust to the upside, right? If you're but slow to react to the downside, right? Nobody wants to decrease their prices. Uh, but quickly. they're very happy to increase their prices. Yeah. And so there's a lead lag sort of um, effect there. Um, but, you know, there, there, you know, while we're on the subject of gas, like one of the, the, the hardest hit sort of price subjects was, was used cars. Right. I think used car prices were down over 10 percent in the in the month of, of November. I, I might be wrong on that. But uh Point is, it's down. It's down, and this why is that? Repair. Why is that? Because it's yeah. a rate-sensitive part of the market. When somebody buys a car, they typically finance a portion of it. I saw yesterday somebody tweeted that a person with an 820 credit score, which is basically close to perfect, mm-hmm. um, got quoted uh, eight and ten percent for their <laughs> auto loan, which is absurd. It's insane, right? Versus like a year and a half ago, it's crazy. Zero rates, like no, you well, know. I remember, remember they were. I mean, that's for, for a long time. I don't remember if it was a year and a half ago, but definitely during the sort of, you know, 2010 to 2020 period. I mean, there was all these advertisements for just like zero percent loans, zero interest yeah. rate free. And now money costs. Money's expensive. Yeah, yeah. That's what they um, meant. Money was cheap. Okay, so before w- one last angle here, crypto. Um, you know, Bitcoin. Well, we, should, tra- we, got, we should talk about the Fed today. Like, like. All right. B- yeah. But so. The, the key thing that he stressed in the um, press conference today in the Q&A section was um, about employment, right? The labor market that we, we've been talking about yeah. is, is still incredibly so tight. tight. Um, and basically, with the so in the summary of economic projections, the Fed said unemployment is going to get up to uh, 4.7%. 4.7% is like, like if you ask Janet Yellen, like a decade ago like where you know she wanted unemployment to be and where she'd be happy about it yeah four percent four and a half that's a really good level and so in their projections they're telling you that like the con like we're going to keep rates really tight for longer we're going to get inflation down it's going to come down all that and unemployment is barely going to move higher it's going to go to where they actually theoretically wanted it a while, yeah not, it's, it's not going to go high it's, it's gonna not going to go, go high exactly right? so, to what their prior target so the was. soft landing is is so in reach for the Fed, right? You've had two inflation numbers in a row, you know, sort of tell you that you're headed in the right direction, and uh, people aren't losing their jobs like crazy, and price pressures are coming off, and so it's like, holy shit, this stuff is working. Wow. So I think there's secretly a lot of optimism, you know, if you're a Fed member and you're, you're seeing, you know, the, the data. Um, Fascinating. I'm not saying this is like a huge inflection point paradigm. No, totally. Shift, but it's it's but like the the soft landing pop probability is saying is it's, it's increasing. Up. It's increasing. Correct. Um, Correct. And it had at some points been, I think, panned by all commentators as like virtually impossible. So it's no longer impossible in your mind. Correct. It is possible. It is possible. Interesting. Um, and then okay, so crypto prices. Yeah. Bitcoin traded up over 18k for the first time, and frankly, it might even be months. I can't recall, but certainly many weeks. ETH was over 1300. Um, I think uh, audience can see the block clock next to me showing 17.8 is the current Bitcoin price. Um, but you know that that was a risk on reaction to this news, and frankly, mostly unmoved. I, I would say today by the Fed, but but 
buoyed yesterday by the CPI, maybe you know just down ever so slightly with the Fed. But yeah, no, I mean it's it's really it's a it's a market that really moves at the margin now. Yeah, right. So you've got the landscape of liquid crypto investors is you know there's the long only like structural I'm a I'm here for like ten years twenty years like forever I'm a, I'm a hodler. Yeah. Right. There are those types, and then there are the speculators that that come into the market, right? I would say, in terms of the speculators that are that are left and remaining in the market, that there's just very few sellers. People's positions have been right sized by the fact that the market has moved a lot lower. There was a lot of forced selling that that's gone through in the market, um, and so that just leaves you with a setup where there's room for a lot of folks to add to risk and. They're already at very low risk numbers, right. so it just leads to to marginal buy pressure when you have good news like inflation coming down or good news like a less hawkish Fed, right? Um, and so, yeah, you know, is that a, is that yeah? Really it just it just updated seventeen six ninety eight. Uh, this is the wrong direction. Um, I know it's going <laughs> going down. Uh, the block clock updates every time a Bitcoin block is mined, um, so it can be a little bit variable, but on about average every ten minutes. Um, yeah, so it sounds like we're still sort of in that spot we've been in. We're, we, we moved a bit higher than we were, say, a couple of weeks ago, certainly. But still, you see a, a lack of upside catalyst and also, you know, a lack of remaining for sellers sort of keeping us in this range. Yeah. Yeah. Range bound is, is like um, we did hear um, some news that um, there's going to be a ETF launched in, in Hong Kong. That's that's futures based. Interesting. Um, I think that can be a, a reasonable catalyst. Um, in, in the context of, you know, it's it's a product. This is the first they would have out there yes. on traditional markets? Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, I, I, this is obviously a very different market than when the Bitcoin ETF launched here in the U.S. Yeah, the ProShares uh, Pro, yeah. futures-based one. The, yeah. Bi, the Bito ETF. Yeah. Um, it's a very different market. At the same time, though, it's, you know, I, I, like it's very dangerous to short crypto. And it's a new product. I would think there's going to be much more buyers than sellers of of, of said product. Um, but again, I you know could That's be something. wrong. Yeah, it is something. The market continues to mature. Um, Absolutely. Bimnet, Abibi, Galaxy Digital Trading, my friend, as always, thank you so much. Pleasure. Welcome to our guest, Eric Voorhees, founder and CEO of Shapeshift. I don't know if we can call it. A, or are you still a CEO now? Shapeshift's a DAO. Eric, welcome. No, I'm I'm just an unemployed bum. I uh, <laughs> I don't I don't work anywhere anymore. So founder of Shapeshift is still accurate, but not CEO. Interesting. So Eric, um, before we dive in, we got a bunch of fun stuff we want to talk about. Um, and just for our audience, that includes regulation, political philosophy, um, the future of crypto, Bitcoin culture, um, and a, but before we get into some of that stuff, let's talk about Shapeshift. Um, tell us. I guess let's, I don't want to say what it is because it's gone through so many iterations. So we'll get to what it is today, but maybe tell us how you started Shapeshift and what it was originally. So uh, Shapeshift started in 2014. Um, the idea came to me in the wake of Mt. Gox, which collapsed and lost $400 million and almost destroyed the whole industry. It was like where 90% of all Bitcoin trading happened back then. And um, it was, it was abysmal. It was like a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, why can't we make an exchange where we're not holding any customer money? Or, or can that be done at all? Um, this was obviously like pre-smart contracts. 
pre-Ethereum. Um, so I, I ruminated on that a lot and tried to figure out a way to do it and realized it could be done as long as you didn't worry about fiat. Like as long as you weren't trying to do fiat to Bitcoin, you could actually do crypto to crypto without custody. And um, that's, that's the genesis of Shapeshift. It was essentially an exchange where you could trade one digital asset for another. Uh, you would send your asset to us and we send you a different asset back. Um, so we were an intermediary in the sense that we were part of the trade with you, but we weren't holding a balance of your coins ever. So if Shapeshift ever got hacked, uh, we can't lose you know, more than a couple seconds worth of trade volume, which would be easily, uh, easily covered. So it was, we called it like uh, consumer protection by design where it didn't matter how trustworthy we were. Um, it didn't matter if our systems were breached, people didn't have to trust us because of the architecture of the application. So um, yeah, that's where, that's where Shapeshift got its start. And I remember using Shapeshift and it becoming pretty big in the sort of 2016, 17 bull run. Um, it was super convenient because like you said, you would input like a receiving address on one chain and then you would send coins from a, you know, to Shapeshift's deposit address. And it was just sort of instant. Um, how did like liquidity management work though on your side? You still had to have a bunch of assets sitting around ready to be sent at any moment, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was one of the largest challenges was that we were always the counterparty to the trade. So we had to hold an, an inventory of every asset. You can kind of think of it like a vending machine. When right. a customer comes up to the vending machine and they want to buy their Snickers bar, you better have enough Snickers bar in the machine to handle it. Um, they put their money in and the Snickers bar needs to come out. So yeah, we did that with every coin and it started simply enough, you know, like Bitcoin and Litecoin were the two that we started with. But then um, as you get more and more, you start realizing that the system has to get pretty crazy. And then like the, the pricing at which we're offering the assets has to be updating in real time based on the markets or else people will screw us. Uh, and so there was a lot of inventory management and balancing. Um, during the really crazy volume periods, you would have issues of just inventory running out before confirmations would happen. So like if, if a bunch of Bitcoin's being bought, um, even if, even if you still have, you know, the assets there, if they haven't confirmed on chain, then you got to wait. And, uh, right. so things would get really backed up sometimes and it was a really wild and crazy machine. You know, there were people at the company that were having to wake up in the middle of the night multiple times just to move funds around because we didn't have automated, um, methods for these assets to move. Mm -hmm. And as we built the automated methods, those introduced their own security concerns. Like if you have a wallet that automatically sends money to another wallet, whenever that one has run out, you can imagine an exploit that doesn't get figured out for 30 minutes even. And the entire wallet has gotten drained and some customer got um, tons of money that they shouldn't have gotten. You know, like one, one error that happened once was that a, an exchange rate got inverted. <laughs> so instead of getting like 10 assets for one that you input, you'd get one instead of 10, but it was in the user's favor. And so we had our entire wallet drained because oh, someone Lord. realized it and, and took it all. Yeah. And then just, did, uh, that, that did kind of thing happened all the time. Transaction after transaction until there was no more to send them. Um, yeah, yeah. It seems like a really, it's an interesting problem. I mean, obviously this is true for any, you know, principal dealer basically, right. Maintaining the appropriate inventory, but in the case of shapeshift, which is really an application 
or at least looked like and felt like an application to the user, right? Like it's different if you're chatting with me and doing an OTC trade and we're like, hey, sorry, we got to replenish our inventory. We'll be back to you in 30 minutes. When the user is sitting there just seeing the thing spin, <laughs> waiting for it, right? Proposes unique challenges. Yeah, well, and, and like two thirds of the volume was just algorithmic coming over the API. And yeah. so when a machine makes a request, like you need to deliver. Right. And there's no weekends, there's no holidays. Right. Uh, it was like, yeah, years and years of constant service, any disruption being a catastrophe. What kind of? It was, uh, yeah, it was stressful. What kind of um, cu customers were using the API? Um, like just, in, was other, were there any other exchanges that were relying on Shapeshift liquidity or were we talking traders? Not really exchanges. Um, not exchanges. We were customers of the exchanges. Right. So when a customer would trade with us, we'd be doing a inverse trade right. or the same trade at, um, at one of the exchanges based on their rates, but a lot of wallets plugged into us. So like non-custodial wallets that wanted to let their users trade between these assets, they would plug into our API and often their customers didn't even know how the trade was happening. It just kind of worked magically in the background. And if our system went down, that reflected poorly on the wallet partner. And so like that kind of relationship management was really important. That's super interesting. All right, let's let's fast forward just a little bit and let's all you well, want yeah, to Well, yeah, I mean, actually, that's kind of a perfect segue because what you've learned from having wallets integrate Shapeshift is that, hey, maybe making a, a wallet is a good idea. And that's kind of what Shapeshift evolved into over time. Um, yeah, so kind of maybe we can go into like the evolution of Shapeshift's product. Just before yeah. we, we're going to go into that, right. but real quick, I just want to raise this one. I remember this happened in 2017. The Wall Street Journal uh, was doing some investigation of crypto in general. And, and they, I think they only, they claim they identified like 80 plus million dollars of illicit money laundering total, like <laughs> in crypto, of which a small percentage they, they blamed Shapeshift for. Um, how, what did you learn from that? What was your reaction to that? But also how did that influence um, further perhaps how you've decided to build Shapeshift going forward from there? Yeah, that was a painful story. So that was in late 2018, um, which I would say was our worst year ever in all, all manners. Like that we imposed KYC and every customer left <laughs> the year when I felt like I had to compromise my very ethics just to move forward. Um, the year when, you know, like volumes declined by 99% and uh, everything just sucked. And then these two quote unquote journalists from the Wall Street Journal um, tricked me into meeting with them because they were doing an article about crypto and they wanted to learn about it. So I met with them for like two hours uh, downtown Denver. And what they were actually after was just getting little tidbits about Shapeshift. And they wrote a hit piece about us, mm -hmm. um, basically alleging that we were like this dirty center for money laundering. And um, it was in the Wall Street Journal. It got huge. It was picked up, you know, um, very widely, and caused immense, immense suffering for our company. Like bank accounts getting closed down. You know, like other businesses not working with us because there's this headline in in the Wall Street Journal, and none of them are going to vet whether it's true or not, you know, like you see the wall street journal publish something and you kind of assume it's true because they have a reputation. And, um, the reason it was so awful is because it was wrong. Like 
if you actually did any blockchain forensic work, you could tell that they were exaggerating risky flows of funds by, you know, two orders of magnitude. Um, and so what, when they said there was like many millions of dollars of illicit flows going through Shapeshift, when you actually look at the blockchain transactions and remove preposterous assumptions from that, um, it was like 1% of that. Mm-hmm. And the, the rate of suspicious flows in, in dollar value relative to our total volumes, um, in actuality was less than like what normal banks have. Um, but none of that kind of context was provided in this article. It was just this hit piece that, um, like talked about how we worked out of this sketchy eighties era office building <laughs> yeah, in, they did uh, say in that. downtown they, Denver they said 80s sur- era. surrounded by pot dispensaries. Yeah. Eighties yeah, <laughs> yeah. era. Like every, every office building in Denver is eighties era. That's right. It went through like an oil boom in the eighties. And, and there's pot dispensaries um, everywhere in Denver as well. <laughs> every, like, yeah, you can't work in an office in Denver without it being an eighties era office building surrounded by dispensaries. <laughs> and we actually had a really nice office. Like a, yeah. it was a beautiful place. Um, and Sal here knows. Yeah. I mean, for the audience, Sal was was an employee of Shapeshift for a long time on the finance team and did great work. So Sal knows very well. And um, I think we ended up calling our our Wi-Fi network like '80s era. Oh yeah, Wi-Fi. I remember that. Like we just that's great. Yeah. So it became a it became a meme and kind of funny, but it was it was devastating to the company. It caused all sorts of legal trouble for us, and it was just flat out fraudulent reporting by the Wall Street Journal. I will never forgive them for it. We called them out. We had actual forensic work done that proved that they were wrong. We told them this. We requested a retraction, and they never did. Um, it was the the first time I really realized how poisonous and fraudulent major media can be. Like I, people always talk about that kind of thing, but this this was a real experience with it where I knew the truth, and so um, yeah, it hurt. So then you move forward, though. I mean, you talked about how you added KYC to Shapeshift, and I remember this was like, obviously, everyone in crypto. I remember on the time at the time on crypto Twitter was like, they were aghast, and it's like, well, I mean, I don't know. There was no path forward without without that. But but then Shapeshift uh, shifted shape, and I recall you became sort of a wallet and non custodial exchange, a little bit different. What did you do next? What was the next iteration after yeah, merely so- just yeah? So once we implemented KYC, um, it completely gutted the business. Like, for example, a machine can't KYC with you. So a wallet partner that has, you know, 100,000 users that are using you over the API, those users can't KYC through you. Like you can't even get them through that flow in that mechanism. So those wallet partners just cut us off and went with other um, competitors that were using our same model, but were not as worried about U.S. regulation. So it just gutted everything. And um, as that happened, we're like, okay, like our our beautiful model that was that people loved, that was protecting people because it didn't take their personal information and it didn't hold their crypto had been gutted. Um, what do we do? And so we we reformed the product to be more of like a, a wallet interface itself, where people could interact with their hardware wallet or with the software software wallet in the um in the web platform and it was a self-custody wallet like via the web and people could still trade through it as long as they had done kyc um so that was a big pivot it took a lot of work and time in the company and you know most of 2018 just kind of rolling that out and into into 2019 and that product never really caught on like it 
um, we struggled a lot and tried lots of different things and it never really got the product market fit that Shapeshift originally had. So it was really two or three years of just like struggling through that. And um, yeah, meanwhile, everyone in the world hating me because I had implemented KYC and calling me a, a sellout, which didn't make any sense because I lost money by doing it. And it was like the... <laughs> Like I didn't get anything I by will, adding and, KYC and like calling yeah. like I mean uh, calling Eric Voorhees like a statist is like maybe one of the most <laughs> oh, yeah. humorous oxymorons <laughs> that you could come up with. Oh wow! Yeah, st statist cuck became my um, <laughs> my nom de guerre on Twitter. So yeah, it, it it sucked. And like I don't, I'm not opposed to KYC just for convenience or business reasons. I'm opposed to it on ethical grounds. So to to implement it, like I was already feeling. Like I had compromised my principles deeply. And, um, and then for the entire community, you know, my people, my tribe to hate on me for it, uh, really that was, that was hard, uh, just from a personal perspective. Yeah, I can imagine. And I remember the, um, the sort of wallet non-custodial, I'm, I'm going to call it a non-custodial DEX like, uh, or non-custodial exchange was sort of in the vein of actually a little bit like what IDEX, I'm sure, you know, Alex and the team there over the years, um, it was similar, I recall, um, at least from my perspective. Um, but this predated on-chain AMMs and such and, and DeFi as we know it, right? I'm thinking of sort of like Ether Delta and IDEX sort of and, and Shapeshift were sort of this like 20, I guess in the case of Ether Delta, it was even older than that. But we'll call it like the 2016 to 2020 non-custodial um, options and then that's changed a lot so so after where where are you now or what is the the next evolution the third shifting of the shape of shape shift yeah so after trudging around a while and not finding any success and feeling like i'd compromised my principles um there was something i can't talk about on this podcast but it was you know yet another demand from a certain regulator and this was a demand which um reached even further into what I considered morally acceptable. I'm actually um, legally not even allowed to talk about it. Um, Sal doesn't even know what this is. Uh, but when it happened, I, I just fucking flipped. And um, I sort of had like a, I don't know, maybe like a John Galt moment of just realizing like I'm living in a world of looters here. I'm not going to play by their game. And I need to figure out how to get out of this box that they have put me in because it's driving me crazy and it's making everyone miserable and it's horribly unethical. Um, this was during the time when Uniswap had come out. Um, this was maybe like nine months, 12 months after Uniswap. And when I learned about Uniswap and tried it, uh, it was magic. It was like all the magic that Shapeshift had done years earlier, but done in a in a truly decentralized way. And the Shapeshift was not decentralized. It was an intermediary. So when you sent your Litecoin in, it went to us, to our wallets, and we sent Bitcoin back to you. Uniswap was a smart contract where um, not only was it non-custodial, but it was not an intermediary. And I was like, how, how are they able to do this without KYC? Um, and just be, I was, I was jealous. I was impressed and inspired and jealous by what they had built. So I really looked into that and learned a lot more about smart contracts, about DEXs, about AMMs generally, and realized like, okay, uh, the way we get out of this is that we stop trying to be an exchange altogether. 
we stop being an intermediary to trades because that is the regulated activity that has caught us up in all this KYC nonsense. And, um, but that also meant like our business model was gone because that's how we made money is taking us a, a spread on those trades. But at this point I was like, <laughs> whatever. What, what's more important to me is building something that people enjoy, that is that is beautiful, that is functional, that is ethical, and that I can be proud of. Um, we'll figure out a business model somehow, but I'm not going to let that keep me in this prison. And so we realized we would stop being an exchange. We would plug into DEXs. When someone wanted to do a trade through our interface, it would go through a DEX. And uh, at first, the problem with that was that DEXs were only Ethereum-based. So you can only do ERC-20 assets. Um, Uniswap can't trade Bitcoin and um, or any other chain that's not on Ethereum. So like, what do we do? We didn't want to just be an Ethereum-only uh, company, but we knew that this was the direction. And then um, a while after, we learned about ThorChain, which I have been a huge proponent of uh, for a while. And ThorChain was essentially a DEX in the model of Uniswap, but worked across chains. And still today is the only the only way you can actually trade in and out of Bitcoin, for example, without wrapped assets, without any kind of proxy asset. Um, and so with a combination of Uniswap and ThorChain, we realized we could do it and integrated both of those into the Shapeshift interface. And once we did that, we then woke up even further and we're like, how about we just decentralize the entire company? And like, I don't want to play this game at all. I don't want to I don't want a corporation. I don't want formal employees. I don't want to have to pay lawyers to tell me like which jurisdictions I need to be registering licenses for every day. All this stuff that is completely crushing my soul. Um, <laughs> I want none of it. And so we decided to decentralize the entire company into a DAO, an idea that I was skeptical of at first, but came to love. And that's what we spent 2021 doing. And as of 2022, Shapeshift has been a DAO. So it is run by a DAO. It's decentralized. I am not the CEO of it anymore. It's not a company. It doesn't have employees. Um, and it is getting progressively more decentralized, including, you know, front end being provided by IPFS and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what we've been working on. Very cool. Awesome. I, I kind of had a few uh, questions as, as we had this conversation about Shapeshift and its evolution. Uh, and then one of them kind of broadly. Um, so obviously Shapeshift has transitioned into a DAO. Um, so much has happened in the market over the past year since Shapeshift made that decision. Treasuries and DAOs are pretty flat or, or down um, just based on price movements. Flat's generous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm looking at like yeah. top line number, um, which is, yeah, somewhat flat, but certainly DAO by DAO, a lot of them are down a lot. Um, so, so what are your thoughts currently on the state of DAOs? I mean, a, a year ago, there was a lot of excitement around DAO tooling and a lot of funding going to them. Uh, I think a lot of that narrative has shifted, um, but certainly there are really long-term novel use cases for DAOs. They are powerful, but we're in this like kind of trough of disillusionment. So, so what are your thoughts on on mm -hmm. what's happening with DAOs right now? Yeah, I think DAOs being like a native crypto phenomenon follows the market patterns of the market generally. Like Bitcoin and ETH are way down. Everything related to DAOs is way down. Everything related to NFTs is way down. You know, yeah. funding for crypto companies is down. The market cap of companies is down. Like miners are down. The entire industry is just lawyers. Lawyers are up. Down. <laughs> lawyers are up. They're always up. Um, lawyers always get bigger and more funding. That's for sure. But um, yeah, DAOs are down because 
crypto and decentralized technology is down. So I've been through enough of these cycles for that to not worry me. Uh, interest in DAOs will flow from, you know, when Bitcoin rises again in, in price, that correlation is, is close to one. Right, right. I guess one of the issues that's perhaps exacerbated by having a native token and a DAO treasury is the exposure to the market cycles, um, as you're alluding to. I noticed some proposals recently um, in Shapeshift's governance forums incorporating, or maybe they're actually in production now, um, protocols like Arbor Finance, Hourglass, that kind of make the financial side of running an organization as a DAO a bit easier. Obviously, they can't have a bank account. They can't maybe get a loan from a bank, right? Um, what are your views on treasury management and access to things like credit for DAO organizations? Yeah, this is where some really exciting innovation is happening. So yeah, um, the Shapeshift DAO has no bank account and never will. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> I don't care how many articles the Wall Street Journal writes, the smart contract that holds the treasury's assets is not going to shut us down. In, in that statement alone is like a very powerful truth. And um, so, yeah, the assets are held in a multi-sig arrangement that are controlled by the DAO members. And um, there are other, you know, let's call them DAO service providers that try to come up with interesting tooling and financial products um, that DAOs can use. So one of the ones that was big uh, earlier in the year, late last year, was, was Tokamak, which um, basically allowed us to, like, post a bunch of uh, Shapeshift's Fox tokens and earn yield on it. And um, there's another one called Rari where we were able to borrow against our assets natively. So these things are all like super, super experimental. Uh, but what's cool is just the collaboration between these DAOs. There's no, there's no like contracts between them. There's no long business development process. There's no, no lawyers involved. It's like these, these communities which are transparent can offer their services to each other and um, can use them openly and and permissionlessly it's like a totally different way of collaborating between organizations uh it's 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 really cool it's very dynamic um there are no gatekeepers you know like at, at shapeshift when it was a corporation if there's a good idea or some partnership that someone thought was wise the number of gatekeepers it would have to pass through to get approved was was many um, these include lawyers who don't at all care about what the customers want these include like all different kinds of interests. And in a DAO, any part of the DAO can just make something happen. And if they need funds, they can ask for approval. And there's no no single gatekeeper. And it just creates this very different dynamic of human organization that I think we're just starting to scratch. Absolutely. I actually wrote about DAOs um, a year ago. And that's kind of one of the points I tried to make is like, hey, an individual DAO certainly can't do everything. But when you start to compose DAOs with other DAOs that each focus on a specific a business model or use case, then you could start to replace entire pieces of infrastructure over the long term. And that's kind of what I see this space looking like in the next five to 10 years. Um, you know, maybe Shapeshift does the wallet, maybe entire DAO just understands how to underwrite um, loans for wallet providers and can handle that entire use case and work with smart contracts and without, to your point, like the human layer that often makes this type of collaboration just way more difficult in introducing you know, jurisdictions where there's different laws that need to be recognized. Um, that's kind of like, I think, where DAOs have gained a lot of traction over the past year, and it's certainly an exciting vector. Yeah, one one clear example of this is like, anyone who's worked or run a company 
knows how horrible like HR is generally <laughs> um, for a number of reasons. But in a civil world, if a person wants to work with someone else, they talk and one of them makes an offer under some terms and the other person can accept it or leave it. And if they accept it, then the two people work together. That's like mutual voluntary interaction. Um, that's not actually how it works in the corporate world. You have to follow dozens and dozens and dozens of rules. It depends on which jurisdiction you're in. The hiring process is full of pitfalls. The firing process can be impossible. Like it's nearly impossible to fire people in certain jurisdictions in the world. Uh, for example, Shapeshift decided years ago never to hire another person in the entire country of France because to fire someone in France um, is so expensive and takes so long that it's never even worth it to hire someone there in the first place. So imagine there's like, you know, that there must be many millions of very talented people in the entire country of France. And we're just going to ignore all of that talent because of some, you know, stupid law that the government made over there that's meant to protect people and actually only hurts them. And all of that nonsense is completely washed away in Dow world. If the Dow wants to work with someone in France, they put out a proposal and someone says, yeah, I'll do it. And the payments are all happening just from the treasury. And it's just so civil and um, clean and efficient and beautiful. And it's such a difference from the corporate HR world. Uh, it, it, it really inspired me and it like brought hope back to my heart that society is actually gonna work out. quick break for our listeners. We'll get back to Eric in a second, and we will talk about Bitcoin culture, um, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and Eric's debate with them, uh, and much more. But before we do that, we've got a poll pinned to our profile on Twitter, at GLXY Research, and the poll reads, Sam Bankman-Fried is charged with crimes, and this by the Southern District of New York, uh, the U.S. attorney there, uh, that could, if he's found guilty on all crimes, uh, carry a maximum sentence of 165 years. The question for you, our audience, is how many years will Sam Bankman-Fried end up spending in jail? Hit us up on Twitter at GLXY Research and make your voice heard. Now back to the interview with Eric. Welcome back. Uh, we're still here with Eric Voorhees, founder and DAO member of Shapeshift. Um, let's, we talked a lot about Shapeshift and stuff, but let's talk about something that was really, really interesting. Um, Sam Bankman-Fried, um, obviously the now handcuffed uh, founder and former CEO of FTX.com, he put out in October a sort of blog on the principles that uh, regulatory principles that FTX and he believed in. It was sort of on the back of the introduction of the DCCPA in the Senate, which is a bill that Sam worked a lot on, which was a comprehensive framework for the regulation of digital assets in the United States, um, which gave a, a, a lot of the sort of leaned CFTC and the sort of commodity versus securities battle. Um, and and we we were actually extremely critical, we Galaxy Digital Research, of Sam's proposals in our newsletter. But by far the most uh, comprehensive and thoughtful rebuttal came from you, Eric. Uh, you wrote a great blog about it, um, which we'll drop the link in the show notes to recommend everyone read. But even more interesting was that you debated Sam about these topics on a bankless podcast 
exactly 14 days before Sam filed for bankruptcy and left FTX. What was that like just in general, that experience? A lot of this went viral and we'll play a clip or two from it in a minute. Yeah. Uh, so when I wrote the blog, it was like a day after he put out his thing. And um, I feel very protective of the industry and particularly like the principles that I think are important. So many people get caught up in the the Lambos and the like Dogecoin memes, um, which are fun, but that's not really why we're here. Right. And uh, I wanted to use that opportunity to just like remind everyone why we're here. We're not trying to build the same financial system that already exists. Uh, and so I responded to Sam with that blog. It was quite well received. And the bankless guys uh, thought, well, let's put together a debate between Eric and Sam. Um, and that was, I guess, a week later or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's really surreal. I, I listened to the debate again a few days ago, <laughs> the first time I've heard it since all this went down and it had a different air to it. Um, I mean, essentially the issue is that, well, at that time, the issue was that Sam has been in Washington, you know, lobbying, and I'll use the accurate term, um, bribing politicians on how to regulate crypto. And in particular, he was willing to accept the licensure of front ends for DeFi, um, so long as the areas of other regulation were done in a way that he liked. And this was like a complete non-starter to me that, that everything that is good about DeFi dies if it falls under a licensing regime. And we can get into why that's true, but um, that's really the crux of the debate. And yeah, it was like two and a half hours. Um, I was a little disappointed in Sam's performance on that debate. Uh, I, I mean, he... At the time, he was like one of the most successful CEOs, founders in crypto history. Right. He had yep. he had built an incredible company at the time. You know, this is like what everyone thought. Um, and so I was expecting him to be, I don't know, impressive in some way. And um, <laughs> and he he wasn't like he kind of just crumpled under like an onslaught of of a dedication to principle. He really did. Which felt good. Let's let's yeah. let's pause for a second. Let me play one of the clips that went viral where Sam is talking about the regulation of DeFi front ends uh, and you push back. If that did mean that like centrally assumed front ends by American targeting American retail had to be licensed, um, I think that could be reasonable. Which Sam, is if, we, um, if the question was let's let's acknowledge that the email protocol will be permissionless as a protocol. Yep. But it was the law of the land in America that every email front-end provider required KYC from its users. Yeah. Because under the justification that we do not want people sending information back and forth with terrorists, yep. where would you so, stand on that position? Oh, I'd be strongly against that position. I think why? Be, I think be, why? Why would I be against it? Because I think that it, I think it'd be like against freedom of speech. I think it'd be disenfranchising a lot of people. I think I would not trust in practice that it would do a good job. So I agree with you on all of that. Um, I'm making a distinction here between, for instance, payments versus like derivatives contracts. Why, why is Aave somehow different than email? So um, why is it different than email? Um, you, you argued so well and so passionately yeah. to not block email with yeah. licensing and KYC. I loved hearing that. Yep. That filled my soul with joy. Such yeah. good arguments. Why yeah. does that not apply to financial transactions? So... Um, 
Why does it not apply to financial transactions? Um, okay, so, I mean, it's pretty clear to your point before, Eric, and obviously the the sort of point that you made clear in that debate, that Sam really has had no understanding of like the underlying ethos behind decentralization and crypto in general. No. I think he revealed himself as a tourist in that debate. Yeah. Yeah. He's a traditional finance trader guy. Yep. Yeah. Um, and and there's many of those types in the industry. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. What's wrong with it is if those types go to Washington and start inviting down regulations on the rest of us, then I have a big problem with it. I hear you. I think. That's what um, he's doing. But that was what was so strange, too, actually. I think in him being so unimpressive on it. It's one thing if he ha if he believes that that there's a there's a difference between speech and finance, uh, you know you can have a, a but he couldn't even really articulate it, which is just shocking. Like you're out here spending millions of dollars and tons of time on political lobbying for financial regulation, and you can't make the case for it. Well, I didn't want to be cynical on the debate with him, but he he is advocating for laws that benefit. A running a centralized exchange. So his his principles are what is helpful to FTX, which is to get you know thorough, compre comprehensive crypto regulation that doesn't infringe on on how FTX operates too too much. That's his principle. Um, that is very different than a moral or ethical principle of how people should be able to interact with money and finance. And everyone who cares about crypto for the right reasons knows those principles like this is why we're building these things to be permissionless and stateless and borderless and immutable it's because of a, a set of moral foundational principles and sam just had no conception of that um hadn't thought about it and i think that's why he just kind of collapsed in front of being confronted with like a consistent moral philosophy well and it doesn't surprise knowing what we know now which is that in that video he's sitting there completely insolvent actually had already traveled to the Middle East, supposedly, to try to raise money. Um, and and also, I mean, if we, a lack of moral foundation for crypto. Well, he also appears to have stolen billions of dollars from people, including us, um, which we have said. So I guess not totally surprising. Just as a, a follow-up here, Eric, um, obviously that was terrible, FTX. Um, and when I look at the DCCPA, which he proposed, I don't really see anything in there that would have actually prevented Sam's theft. Um, now, perhaps, you know, regular examinations by a regulator would have made it less likely, et cetera. But what do we do as an industry to prevent that from happening again at a centralized place like FTX, Regula regulatory or otherwise? So it's worth like backing up and reasserting what the actual crime here was, which is stealing a bunch of customer money. Um, that is already illegal, right? right? We don't need another law to tell us that stealing customer money is illegal. So it's not like there was some loophole in the law and we just need to close that loophole and fix a bunch of regulations. <laughs> what he did is already illegal. I mean, we know that, right? Because they, they've charged him now right. with crimes. So yeah. Yeah. And of course, it didn't prevent the crime. It just will now drag, it just make a bunch of lawyers super wealthy over the next three or five years. <laughs> so... We have these laws and so many of them, like if anyone doesn't believe me, go try to find all the financial laws that exist just in the US. There's like 20 different agencies. Well, actually more than that, because every state has its own agencies as well. So dozens of agencies. 
hundreds of thousands of pages of regulation, thousands of laws, thousands of bureaucrats enforcing these things. We do not have like a dearth of regulation in this industry. Um, and still a $10 billion fraud occurs. If you care about helping people, you should look at that and realize maybe the entire model of how we try to create order in finance is flawed, right? We have these squishy rules written down by politicians and regulators. They are subjectively enforced sometimes in certain ways, and sometimes they catch some portion of the bad guys. This has been status quo. And I don't think anyone looks back at the history of finance in the U.S. and feels like it is this pristine example of um, highly regulated markets that don't have substantial crime. Like it happens all the time. The entire global financial crisis occurred in part because of some of this stuff. So let's acknowledge that like the status quo system ain't great. And let's realize then that there's actually an alternative started by Bitcoin, which is that you build decentralized immutable code to run how finance works. And it is not enforced subjectively. It's actually enforced equally across the entire world. It doesn't require any politicians at all. It doesn't require any tax money. It doesn't try to um, capture some of the bad guys after they've committed bad acts. It prevents bad acts from happening entirely. It operates as the code is written. And this is extremely powerful. Like the, the entire reason Bitcoin is cool is because no one can change the rules of, of Bitcoin. It's this equal, open, objective, transparent system for base money for the world. And you can extend that principle into smart contracts and DeFi. And this is an incredible alternative, not just for like the crypto anarchists like myself who want people to be more free, but actually for, for people who want like law and order. Like if you want transparent markets that operate according to set rules, this is the technology to do it. They should be celebrating this stuff. Um, and so that's the message I've been trying to convey in the wake of Sam's nonsense. Excellent and uh, extremely well said, Eric. Um, let's talk about Bitcoin a little bit. Um, you know, uh, you know, I recall, um, I mean, look, you've been in Bitcoin a, t a long time. I'm going to ask you about some of, some of some OG things. You worked at Bitcoin. 200 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 200 Bitcoin years. Um, you know, at least probably, uh, you know, what are we at? Like in the 700,000, you probably, I'm just going to make this up, but you've probably been into Bitcoin since like block 100,000. Um, <laughs> not not sure. Yeah. May, yeah, May of we'll 2011. We'll have to check that. May 2011. How, well, how did you find out about Bitcoin then in May of 2011? What, like, I mean, I know you were predisposed to this because, um, like you said, you, you call yourself a crypto anarchist. You're, you've, you've long been a libertarian, but how'd you find out about it? Yeah, and I'm not quite an anarchist. I I would just say I'm an, anarcho sympathetic. Um, <laughs> nice. I just like the government to get smaller, like one percent right. smaller. Can we it, try that? Like I don't a think year that's ever where it got happened. a little smaller. That's never. No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I saw a Facebook post from a friend. Um, it was when I was in New Hampshire for the Free State Project, and uh, a friend of mine who then ended up becoming a um, a state representative in New Hampshire. He posted about Bitcoin this article. And, uh, when I saw it, you know, I went through this cycle of dismissal and like, Oh, that looks dumb. And how would that work? And then within a couple hours and a couple more articles, I was like, Oh my God, this is the most incredible invention I've ever seen a form of money beyond state control that no one can turn off. This, this Damn. has a number of reasons it could fail, but if it doesn't fail, it's taken over the world. So that was my entry into the rabbit hole. Very cool. Um, so, but 
I want to play one thing I, rem- I remember just recently. It was the first conference, I think, like basically globally, after the COVID lockdowns. This is Bitcoin 2021, um, in and it was in I can't remember. I think it was in early June um, in Miami, um, and you uh, were you moderated a panel that followed a a panel uh, that was all about toxic Bitcoin maximalism and why it was good. Um, and I want to play a clip just of how you started your panel. So uh, before we begin, did I hear someone in that prior panel say, if you're against toxic maximalism, you are against Bitcoin and you're against freedom? Yeah, that's some bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Eric, uh, you you said it was bullshit uh, what the prior person had said. Um, and you were booed by the Bitcoin crowd at Miami Bitcoin 2021, not egregiously, but audibly. Um, what do you make of that? What is the this current like Bitcoin only culture that exists as sort of a subset of of you know Bitcoin culture overall? What is it? What is it? How do you view that today? Yeah, I mean, what was bullshit was that they were saying that like if you didn't express like a toxic degree of maximalism, then you were anti-Bitcoin, A, and B, anti-freedom, which was like just the most propagandistic nonsense I've heard. And so I had to call it out when I came up on stage to do the the subsequent panel. Um, And it was sad because I heard, before I got up on the panel, I heard the crowd cheering for that statement. Um, And this is not like, this is not the Bitcoin that I learned about. This is not a principles first Bitcoin, shall we say. The principles of Bitcoin are what matter far more than Bitcoin. Principles are decentralization, immutability, borderlessness, stateless money, and the ability of any person in the world to interact openly with a neutral financial system. Um, That's what matters. And I love Bitcoin because it expresses those principles. There are other crypto-based systems which also express those principles, not in the same way, not always as well as Bitcoin in some ways, but sometimes better. Like, for example, I care about financial privacy. Um, OG Bitcoiners cared about financial privacy. One of the cool things about Bitcoin is that it's far more private than banks in certain ways. And now we have other blockchains like Monero or Zcash that are actually anonymous. That's super cool. So of course, if I like Bitcoin based on its principles, I'm going to like those things too. And this whole cohort of maximalists, most of whom got involved like in 2017 or later, um, I think they joined because they have like an insecurity about themselves and they want a tribe to fit in with. And so they repeat these slogans about Bitcoin without actually believing or understanding the principles. Like a lot of these people were probably the ones that dismissed and made fun of Bitcoin if they even heard about it back in 2012 or 2013. And then they joined the bandwagon when it's a bandwagon and when it's cool to do so. And I just, I hate seeing the culture get poisoned by such people. So that's why I called that out. And um, a lot of Bitcoiners aren't maximalists. You know, I think it's a minority position within that group, but it's a very loud one. And it's one that I don't support and I don't want to see. Eric, you, uh, let's, we'll go back a bit. um, Because you've, I I really value your, your perspective on that. Because like we said, you've been in Bitcoin a long time. You were the head of marketing at BitInstant, which um, was the, I'll call it a Bitcoin brokerage founded by Charlie Schrem, 
um, which the Winklevosses, I think, eventually led a, a, a financing round in at one point. Um, Bit Instant, I think, uh, Charlie shut down, and I think Charlie um, was arrested for some basically KYCAML like lack of controls or something like that. Um, I don't think he served time. Uh, I he think didn't. he maybe served probation. Did no, he go in? Oh, jail? yeah. He was in jail for close to two years, at least a year and a half. Oh, geez. I, I yeah, forgot that. Was, and um, I thought, um, well, yeah. <laughs> so, so he really bore the cross for this KYC, for the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, yeah. But what was it like back then selling Bitcoin versus selling it, say, today? And by selling it, I mean, you know, promoting it, but also operating a business that you know, is involved in the exchange of, of assets for big, like, I mean, just, I mean, that's a long time. That's 11 years ago. Like, mm. did, were there more, were big either on Bitcoiners or the market or just tell, tell us what it was like back then. It was exciting. Um, no, so few people knew about Bitcoin. Like if you get in a random car back then, I remember taking taxis or Ubers, which was also new back then around New York city with Charlie. And they'd ask us what we did. And we'd say like, we, we help people buy Bitcoin. And that word wasn't even common enough for people to know what we meant. And they'd like, they'd say, what? Like they didn't understand the word. No one, no one knew what Bitcoin was on the street. And um, even people in finance who had learned about it, you know, mostly dismissed it. There were very few professionals of any kind that cared about it. Um, the professionals who had heard about it dismissed it or told us why it wouldn't work. And um, it just felt like we were helping to grow this little seed of something that could completely change the world um, before anyone acknowledged it was even a thing. So there's a lot of excitement to it. It was very fulfilling and fun, and I, I treasure that time immensely. Um, what happened to Charlie was horrible. Um, he didn't do anything wrong. What he did was he sold Bitcoin to a guy who told Charlie that he was then selling it on to other people using Silk Road. So Charlie got in trouble because he's, he made a voluntary economic transaction with an individual and that individual made other transactions with people who were voluntarily deciding to like take drugs. Um, right. Nothing that Charlie did was immoral or unethical. And he, it was unethical for him to be imprisoned for a year and a half based on that. You also, um, I guess, a little bit later, uh, created Satoshi Dice, uh, which at the time, a lot of interesting stuff about Satoshi Dice, first of all, but, uh, but uh, we'll call it a, a, a dice game um, that used rand randomness from the Bitcoin uh, blockchain um, as, as an input into its, uh, its functioning. Um, what was Satoshi Dice? So Satoshi Dice was a simple gambling game where there were several Bitcoin addresses and anyone could send Bitcoin to one of those addresses with specific odds for winning. The, the expected value or return of all of the odds was the same, but it would have different, different odds of, of winning or losing. So one might be 50, 50 odds that you win. Um, and if you win, you get like, you know, just a little bit more or just a little bit less than double your money back. Another one would be like, um, you know, one in a thousand chance that you'll win. Another one was like 99% chance that you win, but you only win a little tiny bit when you do. And um, it was super cool because it was a demonstration of the power of Bitcoin in two ways. One was anyone in the world could send transactions to this thing. And there was no jurisdictional component at all. 
Bitcoin from any country could go to Satoshi Dice and, and winnings would be paid back to the person. Um, this was like a couple years after the whole takedown of the online poker world. Um, and that was all taken down based not on poker being illegal, but based on laws against using the banking system for gambling. And this completely surpassed the entire banking system. So that was super cool. But also it proved like um, it was called provable fairness. And basically after you did your bets, you could mathematically prove that the role was correct and that the odds were what we said they were. Uh, this was important as a business because people from all over the world didn't really know me or, or trust me, nor should they have to. They could simply trust the math, which was published, and people could check it and know that the bets were fair. So if you think about this, you take the entire like city of Las Vegas with all this gambling, nearly none of it tells you what the odds are of any specific game. And even if they did, you wouldn't know that that was true, right? Even if there's a sticker that says the odds of this are X, you can't verify that. Um, and it's all licensed, right? It's all under the Nevada Gaming Commission and all sorts of regulations are followed to protect. And people. there's a whole history, by the way, of like, of like, uh, you know, you even like think about um, the Godfather, right? Of, of like corruption and, and involved in that process as well in, in Nevada. Yeah. And people still appeal to the government to protect the gaming industry. And it's a bunch of nonsense. And me, you know, this this guy that really doesn't know much about gambling comes along and builds this site. Right. And it was mathematically provable that it was fair. I didn't need a license to do it. Um, I didn't need some government bureaucrat like attesting to anything. I could prove it with math. And this was this was like a profound um a profound advancement. And uh it it was emblematic of just the the trust that you can build using these decentralized systems, and so yeah, I was I was very proud of that, and it became it got it got totally carried away, like it was <laughs> half of all the Bitcoin transactions for the first few years of its existence. That's where I want to take this conversation because at the time there was a there were some people who said that it was sort of an I don't know if the right characterization is it was an illegitimate use of the Bitcoin blockchain or that these Satoshi dice transactions could even be considered scam. Uh sorry, spam. Yep. I, first of all, I don't Yeah, I got a lot of flack for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, what was that like? Yeah. You're paying transaction fees. Well, it was weird because yeah, like put it a different way, Satoshi dice was the primary funding of all Bitcoin mining. It was more than half of all the Bitcoin mining revenue for the first several years of Bitcoin's existence. Um, I was using the chain for this game and paying to use it. Uh, of course, anyone on Bitcoin should be allowed to use the chain if they're paying the fees to use it. Like that's That shouldn't even be controversial. And it doesn't matter what you're doing or how you're doing it. If right. you're paying for the resource, you're playing by the rules that everyone else is using. But there were some people that were very pissed off about yeah, it. Yeah, and it, it, it's been historically controversial subsequently on other times um there was you know of course tether when it was running on the omni layer um but then there was something like i think it was called veriblock somebody had made um a an application that would peg or checkpoint into bitcoin by publishing its own block headers onto bitcoin and that that created a huge spike in transactions like in 17 and 18 and 19 which you can witness like op return transactions um, and people were mad about that. And but of course, these also pay transaction fees. Um, but I want to use this as a segue to ask you about um, developing Bitcoin itself. Um, Shapeshift was a signatory of the DCG New York Agreement, quote unquote, letter um, in 2017. 
um, which argued for a block size increase. Of course, for those who don't know, we actually got an effective block size increase through SegWit um, by itself anyway. But um, why was that? But also, you know, taking into account, say, the block space used by Satoshi Dice, um, do you still think a block size increase will happen over time or needs to happen? Or what else would you like to see Bitcoin do going forward itself from a development standpoint? Yeah, that was a difficult time too. Um, today, I don't think Bitcoin will increase its block size at all anymore. Um, I think that argument is done and over. It has, Bitcoin has ossified in that way. It has its attributes. Um, other chains optimize on that question of throughput at the chain layer. Uh, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, Bitcoin is working, it's successful, it's growing. Um, I think it's, it's okay. Uh, back when that whole debate was happening, what was driving me crazy was for years, like the community was just tearing itself apart, arguing over um, this question of like, should the blocks ever get bigger or not? And it was, in my opinion, causing serious distraction and a it was preventing us from moving forward. Uh, onto other important things. Um, and there were periods of time when like the fees were getting so outrageous that like users were just literally leaving. And um, I remember once uh, <laughs> Shapeshift, as it received transactions and sent transactions, it would have to like move its wallets around and recombine wallets. And at the peak in like late 2017, um, we had to do what was called a wallet migration and we paid and we were having to do with this every few days, mind you. We had to pay six or seven hundred thousand dollars oh my God. of fees to migrate our Bitcoin wallets. And the next few days was another couple hundred thousand dollars. And like that spike dropped off quickly, but um it was getting really bad. And so anyway, uh the the New York agreement was essentially an attempt at compromise. It was people that were cool with SegWit, which I was, and I wanted SegWit to be activated. And it was people that were cool with a modest, not an infinite, but a modest base block size increase other than SegWit. Um, so it ended up becoming called SegWit 2X, meaning a combination of SegWit being activated and a doubling of the block size. Um, and before it could activate, some group of people who I still don't know uh, forked Bitcoin to create Bitcoin Cash. And what that did was take everyone who was like wanting to get the, the larger base block size suddenly moved over to, to Bitcoin cash mm -hmm. and um, completely gutted the whole point of like SegWit 2X compromise, which was to prevent a chain split. So Bitcoin cash caused the chain split and then the whole, the whole point of it kind of fell apart. Um, and at the time I was really sad because the, the community of Bitcoiners was so at odds with each other and there was so much vitriol. Um, and I was hoping that it could be resolved and that like one chain would continue with that entire community together. But that's not what ended up happening. We got a split, we got Bitcoin Cash, um, and then, you know, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. So I'm at peace with it at this point. I think the worst part about it was just like how shitty a lot of the Bitcoiners were to each other. Um, not willing, not being willing to like just discuss the points as reasonable people that cared about this important technology, but just the vilification 
of it um, was really disheartening and horrible. And there's still scars from that, you know, today for sure. Yeah, it was a it was um, definitely a contentious time period. And I, you know, we know now too that Bitcoin Cash, um, I'm pretty confident in just declaring it, you know, mostly a failure. Um, <laughs> but we didn't really know uh, even after in August 2017 when Segwit enacted and BCH split off, like there was a there was a few weeks and even a couple months where it, it actually wasn't totally obvious um, that BTC would you know remain Bitcoin and and Bitcoin Cash would be relegated to this minority fork. Um, yeah, I think also one thing that wasn't appreciated by really anyone back then is that. The thing which ended up alleviating the congestion issue in large part as the industry grew was other chains, right? So like, if you think about the sum total of crypto payments, um, the number of like USDC or Tether payments that happen today, you know, I'm sure it dwarfs the number of Bitcoin transactions that was happening back then. And um, those all happen on the Ethereum chain. So the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin chain is doing its own thing. And many transactions that people need to do just end up on other chains. This is something I was sort of trying to avoid because I wanted Bitcoin to be like the center of everything where where everything was happening, but it it didn't work out that way. And it's it's okay. Um, other chains have satisfied demand in the market and I, I see these things as great compliments and it's, it's worked out all right. One quick follow-up on that because I've been involved in Bitcoin for a while too and I at the time thought it would be the center of everything and now we're kind of on this inevitable path where... Perhaps Ethereum would flip it and is powering all the payments use cases as well as the dApps. Um, so, like, what are your guys' view on like wh- the exact role? How would you articulate Bitcoin's role in the long term, given this this path we're on? Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin's role is like a, a stateless base money that isn't trying to do a lot of complicated stuff. Um, it's very conservative. It's very stable. It's been around longer than anything. And um, it works for that. And so that's great. Uh, will it continue to be used as base money in a world where Ethereum or a similar smart contract platform ends up being much larger in terms of transaction volume? Um, maybe, I don't know. But for now it works. And I like, I like the juxtaposition of the conservative Bitcoin chain that does little with the... Um, kind of crazy Ethereum chain that does a lot and is, is more reckless. I see, I see virtue in both of those paths. I'm glad that we have both things. I wouldn't want a world where there was just Bitcoin moving slowly. And I wouldn't want a world where Bitcoin had been abandoned and everyone was on ETH that was moving somewhat recklessly. I think both are good. And I see the virtue on both sides. Yeah. I, I, that's, I think really well said. I think that's also the path that we are on. I will say there's a couple caveats that I have, which is one is that there is lightning, um, which I think for fast payments could be good. But again, right now, that's just wallet to wallet, essentially person to person Bitcoin payments. It's not application to application payments right yet because there's not applications there on chain. Um, So there's limitations. My, my My issue with lightning, as much as I like it in principle, is that the apps which have become well-known and and used with a reasonable frequency are like actually financial intermediaries with KYC. And this is where- You're right, most of them. This is where the Bitcoin community has, yeah, most of them. The Bitcoin community has completely ignored this, which is again, because they've forgotten principle. 
um, the, the Bitcoin maximalist community is more, far more likely to celebrate and applaud a KYC intermediary lightning app <laughs> than it is to celebrate and applaud Monero or Zcash. Right, yeah. There's something so deeply wrong with that. And yet I'm called the shitcoiner because I hold that opinion by these maxis. <laughs> so I, I agree with a lot of the points you guys made. Uh, and as a guy who loves Bitcoin and still thinks it's a very safe bet, my only fear with this, and I see it mostly with newer entrants into crypto, you know, even like all these new NFT users that never touched DeFi before, is that you really only need Ethereum at the base level. You can kind of do all your DGEN stuff, whether it's buying other ERC-20s, NFTs, and you kind of sweep it back into USDC or ETH. And like in many ways, Bitcoin is definitely not required to power that entire life cycle of uh, user experience in, in decentralized uh, crypto, finance applications, what have you. It almost feels like Bitcoin is like this really loud, opinionated, uh, like separate group that has very little interoperability other than, you know, you can cross chain with ThorSwap or a centralized exchange. That's really the only ways I know of to like bridge Bitcoin into ETH and back and forth or other chains. Um, I mean, is there any fear that you guys have that we're kind of on this path and maybe Bitcoin's role gets diminished over time? Yeah, um, I, I'm a little worried about it, but the Zen part of me remembers that like what actually matters is the principles here, not the specific coins. What I care about is that stateless money takes over the world. And I don't care if that's Bitcoin or Ethereum or something still un, uninvented. At the same time, like because Bitcoin has remained so conservative, it just does not have many of the risks that Ethereum does. And that's very valuable. And that's not something that Ethereum can change. Like Ethereum can't design into itself <laughs> um, the, the conservative history that Bitcoin has. Right. And especially post proof of stake Ethereum, these things have fundamentally different characteristics. Um, and I don't know what is better or wins out over the long term or if both are great, but I'm glad we have both. And um, I don't want Bitcoin to change to proof of stake. And I thought it was cool that Ethereum did. And we have both. And that, in my opinion, that makes it all the more likely to actually, for, for crypto to actually defeat the real enemy, which is the fiat banking system. Like that's the enemy, not, not you know, the, the next blockchain that comes out. So I see this as like a Hydra approach. Um, and I, I'm just generally positive on the innovation that's happening. And I want to see more of it. Eric, uh, before we wrap, this has been a great interview. Really appreciate you coming on. What what gets you most excited, or what are the uh, the parting words that you'd leave our audience in general? I mean, what gets me most excited is the same thing that's gotten me excited since 2011, which is that uh, society has a financial foundation which no government can control, and it's growing, and um, it's not stoppable. You can't turn it off and it's working. Um, and it's already achieved a great deal of network effect. Uh, if my entire life and career involved in this stuff only exists to see the resting of control of money out of the hands of the state and into the hands of the market, that is immensely fulfilling and exciting to me. And so every, every day that I get to participate in this stuff and see that happening um, is, is very fulfilling. So that's what excites me is moving money out of the government and into the hands of people. I think future generations will look back at it as like one of the most fundamental changes in how society operates that has ever occurred. And we get to live in it right now and see it unfold. 
So, um, yeah, I, I love it. I'm super, you know, inspired every day and, uh, really grateful for all the people and the talent that have dedicated their lives to building this stuff. Eric Voorhees, founder, uh, DAO member of Shapeshift. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's it for our show today. Thank you so much to our guest, Eric Voorhees. Um, honestly, he he has such an interesting history and, and, and principled history of pushing for the crypto ethos. Every product he's built um, has been designed to minimize the amount of information he collects on users and maximize the non-custodial nature of that user engagement. And, and when he has encountered roadblocks, he's iterated further to further remove um, him and his team from the process, which I think is extremely admirable and interesting. So thank you so much, Eric Voorhees, uh, for joining us. Also, thank you to Saul Kadir from the research team uh, for joining from that interview. Uh, as Eric mentioned in the interview, Saul previously worked at ShapeShift, so um, always appreciate his insights uh, on this and other topics. And of course, thank you to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading uh, for his insights on markets. That's all we've got. Um, we're getting close to the holidays, but we will be back next week uh, with a roundtable with members of the Galaxy Research team. Until then, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.